Hey, this is Micah Bosworth. I'm the pastor here at Ridgepoint, and this is our sermon podcast. I wanted to thank you for joining us today. Hope this is an encouragement to you. Hope it helps to build your faith. And I hope it helps you to see that God is working in your life. Enjoy the message. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 12 verses for us this morning. Uh, to get us started, and, uh, and then we'll get into the message, all right? So the Bible says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of, bl- of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to his abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein, all of what he just talked about, he says, in that ye greatly rejoice, Though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom, having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. That's a really wordy statement right there. It just like adds and adds and adds upon it. And I hope that we'll we'll give a little bit of an overview of some of what Peter is saying uh, and then look at how uh, in this world, Christians, followers of Jesus, are going to be different because we have a different type of faith in the midst of trials. That's where we're going to get to eventually in the message, all right? So once you start hearing me talk about trials, we're getting close to the end of the message because uh, that's what we're really going to hone in on as far as our application. But before we do that, let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes. Let's just take a moment and in the quietness of our own hearts before we even uh, open the message in prayer, just pray in the quietness of your own heart, Lord, would you speak to me and whatever you speak to me about, Would you give me the grace and strength I need to respond to you this morning? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the time that we have to now be in your word, Lord, to be able to learn from you and uh, learn how each and every one of us, as those who are followers of you, Lord, can live with a faith that is stable, with a faith that uh, that is enduring, Lord, even in the midst of heaviness even in the midst of hard times. And I pray, God, that you would help each and every one of us to walk away from this message with something that we can glorify you for, Lord, something that each and every one of us can live out this week, 
uh, Lord, uh, each and every one of us can think on as we walk with you uh, each and every day this week. I pray that you would be honored and glorified in the way that we respond to the message that you've given. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're starting a, uh, a new study through a new book of the Bible, which means we need to understand some context, all right? We need to know a little bit about what's going on uh, around this letter and what was going on. So there's going to be a lot of uh, introductory thought today in our message, and I want uh, to, at the onset of this study, uh, really even before we get into some of those introductory thoughts, I just want to let you know that uh, because we're studying this overall theme of the book of First Peter, of him giving us uh, thoughts of being different or being set apart, uh, there will be statements and portions of thoughts that we'll cover, we're going to cover the whole book, but we might just give a cursory and a summarized thought of uh, what Peter is saying instead of getting bogged down with a bunch of definitions and parsing of words and, and just uh, sitting here for a really long time with a lot of different uh, getting into the weeds, so to say. I don't want to get into the weeds on this study, so we're going to kind of be laser-focused in how we get through the book. And if you want to talk about any of the statements that we kind of do a cursory glance at, great. Schedule time. I love to talk to you sometime, not on, not on Sunday morning during the message, all right? Uh, but uh, we're going to travel through this uh, book and see this theme of being different, being set apart, being pilgrims or strangers or sojourners in this land, in this world that we currently uh, reside in. So uh, I want to, though, some of these introductory thoughts, I want to get your mind working a little bit, wake you up a little bit, okay? So I'm going to ask some questions. We're going to do some Bible study before we get into it, kind of like we do even some uh, during our small groups, uh, just answering some questions to get the context of what's taking place, okay? So we have this book of 1 Peter. Who was the book of 1 Peter written by? Or what? Yeah, who wrote it? Who wrote this book? Anybody got a guess? Peter, all right, so some of you are awake, you got it. Peter, right at the beginning, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strength, to, and then we're going to get to that in a second. If you actually, if you look to the back of the book, you also find out that Peter wrote this alongside or maybe by the hand of a man named Silvanus. He said, by Silvanus, I write this letter to you. So uh, Silvanus would be another name that we, we know him as one of Paul's traveling buddies, Silas. So Silvanus, Silas, uh, uh, both kind of interchangeably used throughout the New Testament. So Silas here is uh, helping Peter to write this letter. But who is Peter, okay? If Peter wrote this, we need to know who Peter is. Who is Peter? Well, Peter is one of those... Uh, original 12 disciples that were called out personally by Jesus himself when he was on this earth and then personally sent out with the Great Commission, right? He was one of those uh, original 12 that were called out and then sent out by Jesus himself. But if you uh, look at Peter's life, something that's interesting, something that I love if, if you study Peter's life is there's this one conversation, I think it's in Luke chapter 22, where uh, Jesus is speaking to Peter and, uh, and you, you remember the conversation where Peter goes, if, if anyone else denies you, I'll tell you one thing, I won't, right? You remember that whole conversation? And then Jesus has to kind of humble him and say, actually, you're going to be the one to do it, and you're going to do it three times. And, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But uh, Peter, if you look at the conversation that was there, Peter, when he's talking to Jesus, Jesus says this. He says, okay, you're going, you're going to uh, actually deny me, but when you return, when you repent, 
He's, he's showing him some hope. You're going to fail, but I know you're going to come back. And when you do, do you remember what he told him to do? He said, when you've come back strengthened, this is what I want you to do. Strengthen the brethren, right? You remember him saying that? Strengthen the brethren. I love that so many years later, we have Peter writing a letter to some believers in an area of the world uh, that needed some encouragement. They needed some strengthening in a time of suffering and in a time of persecution. So Peter, uh, closer to the end of his life now, is doing exactly what Jesus told him to do. When you return, you're going to fail, but when you return, strengthen the brethren. Use that gift that I've given to you to help strengthen other believers. And we see Peter doing that. So that's who Peter is, okay? Peter writes this letter. Who is uh, Peter writing this letter to? Okay, it's right there in verse number one. Who's he writing the letter to? To the who? The strangers, right? Now that's not talking about the people you see in Walmart, all right? It's not talking about the strange, strange people like that. It's a stranger. It also could be translated pilgrims, sojourners, uh, exiles. There's all kinds of words uh, that could be used to talk about it. The way that we would probably say it now is uh, a resident alien, all right? A resident alien. In, in other words, someone who belongs to a specific country but is living or residing in a different country than the one that they belong to. Okay, so right at the forefront, Peter is trying to get into the mind of his readers, you are a citizen of a different country than the one you currently live in. Right at the get-go, he's already trying to get that into their mind. Okay, remember that. That's going to come into play when we see what he's talking about. But it says, to these strangers, to these pilgrims who are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's writing to these uh, people who are believers in Christ, who live in the area that, if you were to look at a Bible map, is uh, in what we now call northern Turkey. Okay, Northern Turkey is uh, modern-day Bithynia, Asia, Cappadocia, Galatia, if you were to look at a map. All right. So these people that live all up there, Paul, he traveled up in this area. Paul traveled through here. In fact, this is one of those areas, too, where Paul, on his missionary journey, he said, uh, we wanted to go here, and the Spirit told us no. Okay? This was one of the areas that, uh, on his, it's his first or second missionary journey, they wanted to go here, but the Spirit said no. But the gospel did get there, and Paul did travel through this area, just not on that one missionary journey that he wanted to go there. All right? So this, there's these churches, there's these believers that are scattered throughout this area of what we now call northern Turkey uh, that... Peter is writing this letter to. Now, another good thing to know when you're reading especially letters to someone in Scripture is when was this letter written? Kind of gives you the context of what's going on in the world at this time. This letter written by Peter was written somewhere between 60 and 65 A.D. Somewhere between 60 and 65 A.D. And this was during the reign of an evil man named Nero. Now, if you don't know much about uh, Nero, let me just say this. This guy killed his mother, he killed his first wife, and probably killed his second wife, all right? Uh, the, the guy, he was, he was so twisted that history believes he actually burned the entire city of Rome. Uh, what we do know uh, from history is that in July of 64 AD, a big fire broke out and burned for six days uncontrollably in Rome. On the sixth day, they put it out, but then it reignites and burns for another three days. And, 
And history believes that Nero started this fire himself because he had this insatiable lust to build. And the Senate wouldn't let him do it. And so uh, because of that, they say that he might have burned it all down just so that he could rebuild everything. That's, that's how twisted this man, uh, his thinking was. Well, that, that didn't go well. Evidently, uh, once everyone started to blame him because they uh, assumed that he had done it, he decided to blame a, a different person. And who he started to blame was this little group of very passionate, already hated people called Christ ones, the Christians, the followers of the way, Jesus followers. He, he, Nero, blamed them. So this already persecuted group got persecuted even more brutally in this season in which Peter is writing this letter. Okay, so a, a time where uh, that, that Christians, followers of Jesus, are being persecuted more and more. To give you an idea of even more how awful Nero was, he would put animal skins of recently dead animals on Christians and then he would lock them into a, a, a cage and unleash a pack of wild dogs uh, on them and then, and then watch as these dogs mauled the Christians. And he would just sit there and watch while, while eating and, and drinking wine and just having a good time. Even further, to, uh, this, this guy, he would take Christians and he would dip them in hot wax and then he would put them on a tree tie them to a tree and light them on fire and use these trees uh, and, and human beings as candles to light the night skies as he would throw parties around these suffering Christians. Okay, so a sick guy. This, this is a guy who, who honestly, he, he makes some of the people in history that have persecuted God's people, he makes them look like they weren't even trying hard enough. Right, Because this, this guy just went over and abundantly to make Christians suffer. So this letter is written to a group of Christians who were either currently suffering or would one day be suffering. And Peter, he's trying to give them the right perspective of what kingdom they belong to in order that he might, that might help them through the suffering. So the, the Greek word translated strangers there, as I said, could be translated many ways. Exiles, sojourners, foreigners, pilgrims, aliens. What Peter is trying to relate to them is that we need to understand and remember that this world is not our home. That this world is not our home. We're just passing through this world. You're, you're citizen of heaven. You're living for a heavenly God. You're passing through this temporary world to an eternal dwelling place where you'll be with God. Well, when, when you're in a foreign country, the reality is you stick out. If you go traveling to other places in this world, you go and, uh, and you, you're, especially if you're like the typical tourist with the, the touristy clothes and the binoculars and the camera, everything, they, they know you're different. Right? If you go to a different country, uh, your, your passport is a different kind of passport that gets stamped. You, you dress differently. You talk differently. You uh, speak a different language. There's all kinds of things that when you're in a country that isn't the one that you originally belong to, then you stick out. You're different. You uh, are completely different from that culture that you are currently residing in. And what you see Peter point to throughout this entire letter is that if this world is not where we belong, 
Okay, if this world is not where we belong, then we will be different from this world. He's saying if you're a foreigner here, then it's going to be evident that you're not of this world, that you are different. And as we study this letter, we'll find that as followers of Jesus, being citizens of another country, that means that we'll have different values than those around us, different morals than other people, different belief systems, a different foundation that we stand upon. We'll be different as a, as a husband, as a wife, as a servant, as a citizen of your country, and as, as a leader, you'll be different And how you treat people who persecute you and mistreat you. You'll invest your money and your time differently. Why? Because we're just pilgrims. We're foreigners here. We live according to a different kingdom's principles. And Peter, he, he, uh, trying to make this point, right at the beginning gets right into how we are different by pointing to our faith. By pointing to our faith. So uh, look there at... Uh, the, the first few verses, what he talks about, just some of the facts about our faith. He, he says, our faith is based in who God is and what Christ has done. So right at the beginning, he's writing to these people, elect according to the foreknowledge of the God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That, that's a really wordy statement of saying this. Those of you who have believed and are growing in the gospel, okay, you believed, the gospel, and you're growing in the gospel by the plan of the Father, by the process of the Spirit, and by the payment of Jesus Christ. Do you see that there? Uh, the, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the, by the plan of the Father, okay, through the sanctification of the Spirit, the process of the Spirit growing us, and by the payment of Jesus Christ's blood. Okay, so right at the get-go, we already know he's talking to people who have faith in God's plan in the growth that the Spirit will bring, all because of what Jesus Christ has done. So right there, he's saying, our faith is based in who God is and on what Christ has done. And what he says in verse number three is, he says that according to his abundant mercy, he has begotten us again. Another way we say it is, you've been born again, right? We've been born again. You think of uh, that story in, uh, in John chapter number three when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. And he says, you have to be born again. And he goes, what? How can I go back inside my mother and come back out? I'm a full-grown man. He goes, you're not, you're not getting it. You gotta be born of water physically, okay? Water breaks, all that. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about baptism there. You gotta be born of water physically, and then you gotta be born of the spirit. So there's a physical birth and a spiritual rebirth is what he's talking about. So he's saying uh, that because of our faith, we've been begotten again, we've been born again spiritually, Unto, what does he say? A lively hope. So he's giving us this stability in our faith to say this. Our faith has produced within us a living hope. Now, hope, when the scripture talks about hope, it's not talking about a lot of times we say, well, I hope we get to go so, such and such place next Friday. You know, I hope we get to do it. It's like wishful thinking. Like kids are always uh, wishful thinking. I hope we get to do this. That's not what the Bible is talking about here when it's talking about hope. It's talking about a confident expectation of something we know is going to take place. So uh, when, when he says a living hope here, P- Peter is tying our hope, our expectation our confident expectation to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus Christ is living. 
There's a lot of people, they've tried to debunk and disprove the resurrection of Jesus. And some of them, one of the most famous ones is, is named Lee Strobel. They began to do that work to debunk the resurrection of Christ and in the process became convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and became a Christian. It's, it's happened time and time again. And, and the truth is that there are things that both Christian authors, like in the four Gospels, and non-Christian historians, like Josephus or Tacitus or Lucian, uh, that uh, they, they agree on a lot of things about Jesus' resurrection. And that is that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. They all agree to this, both Christian and non-Christian sources alike. He, was, he died by Roman crucifixion. He was buried in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. That the tomb was found empty by a group of women followers on the Sunday after his crucifixion. And then uh, shortly after his death, his followers had real experiences that they believe were actual appearances of the risen Christ. And that these appearances transformed them to the point of being willing to die for their faith. The resurrection of Jesus was taught very early, soon after uh, the crucifixion. James, Jesus' own brother who was an unbeliever at the time, became a Christian due to his own experience with someone who he believed to be his resurrected brother, Jesus. The Christian persecutor Saul became a believer after a similar experience of seeing the resurrected Christ. All of those facts are things that are agreed upon by both Christian and non-Christian historians alike. So you, you look through it, the resurrection of Christ is, uh, is, has been, though it's been questioned time and time again, it's also been proven time and time again. And, and the resurrection of Christ is the crux of our faith. Paul said that if Christ did not rise from the dead, then we're of all men most miserable. But the truth is, he did rise from the dead. Jesus Christ did rise. And, and Peter, he's tying our hope, our confident expectation of eternal salvation to the confidence that these people had in the resurrection of Jesus. He's saying, just as sure as Jesus rose from the dead, we have a confidence and a surety that we will one day rise and be with him forever. So he's saying, our, our faith gives us a living hope tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which you believe to be proven fact. He's speaking to people who would have heard the testimony of people who actually saw the risen Christ. And they say, he's saying, just, about, just as though you didn't see him, but you believe the surety of his resurrection, I'm telling you, you can believe the surety that we have a hope of eternal salvation in him. But not only a living hope, he says we have a lasting hope. Our, our faith produces not just a living hope in Christ, but a lasting one. Look at the words he says in verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled. It doesn't fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. I'm so glad it's reserved there and not here, <laughs> right? Because Jesus, uh, when he spoke of uh, where our treasure should be, he said, what, what can happen here on earth? Moth and rust, things can corrupt anything stored here on this earth. But he said, but things that are stored in heaven? No, no, no. Moth and rust, they can't corrupt up there. So Peter, he's saying, your eternal salvation, your hope, it's undefiled, it's incorruptible, and it's reserved in a place where no one can touch it, where it cannot be corrupted. So uh, hold to this hope and this faith. He even goes further and says that we are kept, we're, we're guarded there, that word kept means guarded, just as uh, the Bible says, keep your heart with all diligence. It's telling you to guard your heart. He's saying, we who believe in this hope 
and have this confident expectation are kept or guarded by the power of God. And how much more surety do we need, right? It's a living hope that will last forever, reserved in heaven, and kept, guarded by not my power, not your power, by God's power. It's held together. So he's saying, you have this confident faith and hope for salvation, for eternal salvation. So already, Peter is rooting them in how our faith is stable. Our faith is sure. Our our faith is something that we can anchor ourselves in. And he even says, wherein, in verse 6, he says, wherein, in this faith, okay, we greatly rejoice. So, the surety of all of our faith and hope brings rejoicing in our heart, is what Peter says. He says, it brings a rejoicing in your heart even though you might be going through heavy times. Isn't that what he said? He said, even though we're feeling heaviness in the midst of manifold trials, manifold temptations. You know, trials, they're a, they're a reality of life. We, we all go through them, both believers and unbelievers alike go through hard times. But what Peter is trying to point to is the truth that we are different in trials. Our faith keeps us grounded and rejoicing through hardship. He says trials are diverse. When he says they're manifold temptations, that word manifold there is a word that means many colored. It's like when you look through a prism and you see many colors, okay? Manifold temptations. there's, There's all kinds of various trials that we go through. There's uh, emotional trials, there's physical trials, there's, uh, there's uh, spiritual trials that we go through. There's all kinds of different trials. And, and one, just a side note, I, I have to say this because it's, it's not part of the message and we'll get there soon, but I love this. If you keep reading First Peter, later he uses the same word, manifold temptations here, same word, one other time in his letter. And it's in chapter number four, I think it's verse 10 when uh, he's talking about the manifold grace of God, which just points to the fact to me, as many faceted, many colors or shades of trials as there are, there's just as many shades of grace for those trials. Isn't that an awesome truth? Just had to point that out because it's not part of this message, but we'll get there, all right? The grace of God eventually. But here, notice he says, these trials are many and these trials cause grief. Now, wait a second. Didn't he just say we rejoice? But now he's saying we have heaviness of grief? How how is that possible? Well, the truth is this, that for the Christian, sadness and gladness can coexist. They can. They can exist at the same time. It's not saying that we enjoy the hardships. It's not saying we enjoy the trials like, yes, I love suffering. That's not what it's talking about. He's saying it, it is a grievous thing, right? It is a grievous thing to suffer. But what he's saying is this. The difference is that we have joy that can't even be explained in the midst of hardships because though it hurts and we grieve over the hurt that it is causing, we have joy knowing the purpose that will come as a result of the trial. So the difference between our faith in the midst of trials and the faith of those Uh, 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 unbelievers and what they're trusting in the midst of trials is he's saying you have something that's sure that's steadfast that will last forever that gives you hope confident expectation what God is going to do in and through your life and because of that confidence 
though it's not fun, no one enjoys it, he's saying this, you can both be hurting, feel the hurt, the grief that the trial is causing, but at the same time, have joy knowing that this current grief is going to bring about something great at the end of it. So gladness and sadness can coexist for the believer. And Peter, he gets at that here when he says that trials can be good for you. What, what does he say there? He says, if need be. And Peter, why'd you have to say that? Because now that means that sometimes trials are, are on purpose. Like, it's not just for a purpose, it's on purpose in our life. Like, there are some times where I know that in order for, uh, you know, there's always, I, 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 just top of my head illustration, I haven't gotten to do this yet, but I'm looking forward to it. You know, there's always, when you're teaching a kid how to ride a bike, it, it, it needs be that at one point the dad lets go of the bike and lets the kid fall, right? It needs be that it has to take place for them to eventually figure out how to balance themselves. If you're just always holding on to it, then it's not gonna happen. Peter's saying in a similar fashion, God knows sometimes it needs be that he lets you go through this trial. Why? Because there's a purpose for it in your life. That though there's heaviness now, there's a purpose for it coming. And he'll come to this again toward the end of his letter when he tells them that after suffering for a time, God will bring establishment and stability and growth to their life. He says that in chapter number five. So as followers of Jesus, as citizens of a different kingdom, as strangers and pilgrims in this world, we will have a different faith in trials because we understand they have a purpose. Well, what are some of the purposes of trials in regard to our faith? Well, let's look at just two that Peter gives us here in our passage, all right? First of all, Peter tells us this, trials reveal our faith. Trials reveal our faith. That, that wording there that he says, that the trial of your faith. The word there translated trial is a word that indicates something that has been proven. It's trustworthy. So he's saying the, the trustworthiness of your faith. He's talking about the fact that trials actually reveal whether our faith is trustworthy or not. A, a jeweler can tell if something is real by testing it by fire. Right? If it, it might look real, but if it's uh, just painted to look like gold and it's not actual gold, it goes into the fire, it might melt or at the very least break into pieces, right? And the paint comes off. But if it's real gold, what's going to take place when you put it in there? It's going to be proven to be real gold. And as we'll see in just a moment, the, the picture also says this, not only that, but the, the gold becomes more valuable when tried by fire. Okay, so he, he's saying this fire, this time that we're going through of trial is actually something to prove or reveal our faith on whether it is trustworthy or not. The sad reality is there are many people in church who believe they have genuine trustworthy faith, but when trials come, their faith is revealed and it wasn't trustworthy. It happens all the time. As a pastor, it's one of the greatest concerns for me because in this Western world, especially in America, it can, for, uh, for a lot of uh, of us, it can be easy to be a Christian. It, to, to, to say you're a Christian in America doesn't necessarily yet bring about all kinds of persecution like it did for many of these people. So uh, it can somewhat be easy to be a Christian, and so many people, they'll call themselves Christians, but they're not actually Christians at all. It's a false faith. 
I've seen it time and time again where uh, there are certain types of faith that someone uh, says with their mouth, but then when the testing comes to reveal if that faith is trustworthy, it ends up being untrustworthy faith. Some of the untrustworthy faith that I've seen as in my time of ministry is some, some people, the only kind of faith they have is what we would call an inherited faith, which would be this, uh, your parents went to church, so you went to church, right? That it, it didn't really go further than that. This kind of faith is one that you have just because it's what you grew up with or what you've always known, but it's never actually grown roots into your heart personally. Your, your faith hasn't become personal, and often when this is someone's faith, when it's only an inherited faith, but it's not made a personal faith, then when hard questions are asked, or, or when trials come, they don't actually have roots deep enough to dig into the nutrients of God's word for answers, and they end up losing their faith, or turning away for a season in, their, in, in faith, or in unfaith. The, the truth is, if uh, faith is just inherited, but not made personal, it's not a trustworthy faith. It's one that will be proven to be untrustworthy in hard times or when hard questions arise. Another uh, untrustworthy faith is a faith that is shallow, a shallow faith. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 13 and in Mark chapter 4 when he gave the parable of the sower and the seed. He said some seed takes root, but it doesn't grow deep enough. And so when the worries of this life and the cares of the world come along, it chokes out the plant. And in fact, I'm not trying to be a prophet of doom, but it's just a reality that some who are listening to the message today and happy to do so today, six months or a year from now, won't be in church at all. I'm not trying to, as I said, be a prophet of doom. It's just a reality. I've seen it time and time again that people who are in church, something comes along in their life and because it was just a shallow faith, some addiction or uh, or some uh, temptation or some hardship comes into their life and then they no longer have the spiritual power or victory because they didn't really ever have real roots to keep, you, keep them deep in their faith. It, this, the uh, people I can think of even now that I can point to who were with, were with us at one point, whether it's here or in our previous ministry, who were with us at one point and within six months to a year they were no longer in church at all because the cares of this world or hardships of life came in and choked out their faith. That's not a trustworthy faith. You, you need to get where your roots grow deep. There's so many ways to do this, to uh, study the word of God, get faithful to be in church, to be in the word. Don't settle for shallow, untrustworthy faith. Or it just might be that when the hardships come, it chokes out the faith. Another untrustworthy faith is a faith that is conditional. Conditional faith. I've seen so many people that, that they say, I believe in God, I love God, but really that's, that's just lip service because at the root of it, it's this, I believe and love God as long as things are going well, as long as things are going my way. And then when something bad happens, they say, well, how can I believe in a God that allows bad things to happen? And, and the conditional faith cannot be trusted because life is unpredictable. People are unpredictable. If your faith is conditioned upon good circumstances in your life, it won't last because good circumstances never last. So if that's what your faith is conditioned upon, then it is not a trustworthy faith. 
And what Peter tells us is that genuine faith, trustworthy faith, is revealed through trials. Trials, they have a way of revealing the depth of our faith. So work to grow roots in Christ. This is why I believe Paul and Peter also challenge believers to grow in their knowledge of the faith. And as we'll see in a couple weeks, we do that through getting into the lasting word of God. And in, in uh, just a couple of, uh, of paragraphs from now, Peter says that the word of God, everything else will pass away. Flower fades, all of that, it'll pass away. But God's word does not pass away. So if, our, if we're rooting ourselves more and more into the nutrients, into the soil of God's word, which lasts forever and endures, then how much more will our faith in times of trial and hardship endure along with what we're anchored into? So what, what he's saying is get yourself deep roots into the word of God that we might have a trustworthy faith that endures because we're rooted and grounded in the word that endures. So Peter, he shows us that in, in contrast to the world around us, whose faith crumbles and shifts with their circumstances, our faith is different. Our faith is proven to be trustworthy through trials. But, but Peter also describes for us that trials not only reveal the trustworthy nature of our faith, but trials actually also refine our faith. Trials don't only reveal our faith, trials refine our faith. James, he says it this way, as we study the book of James, the trying of your faith brings about the fruit of perfection or completeness in your life. Paul, he says in Romans that tribulations produce endurance and character and hope within us. Just as gold in a fire becomes more valuable, so too our faith becomes more valuable, more stable, more complete, more robust when we go through hardships. Think of how testings strengthen Peter's faith, the writer of this letter. Before testing, Peter was rash. He was hot-headed. Afterward, we see him tenacious and bold with purpose, full of faith. God used testing to strengthen Peter, trials to strengthen Peter. You say, what testing? Well, remember that conversation we mentioned a moment ago where Peter said, I won't deny you. Even if everyone else does, I'll be the one who is standing strong. <coughs> Excuse me. You can count on me, he said. And then what happens? He denies him three times. One of the times he denied him was to a little bitty girl. It, this little girl, aren't you one of his followers? I don't know. I just, he's scared of even his faith faltered in front of even uh, a little girl. That he, he was cowering in that time. But then what happens? After Peter denied Jesus, what happens? Christ dies for Peter's sins and for ours. Three days later, the stone is rolled away and the tomb is empty. Fast forward a bit to another conversation recorded in John chapter 21 between Jesus and Peter. And what happens? Jesus says this, hey, 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 do you love me? Yes, you know, Lord, I love you. Okay, feed my sheep. Hey, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my lambs. Hey, Peter, do you love me? Ah, Lord, you know I love you. And feed my sheep. Follow me. What about John? Don't worry about John. You follow me. That's the whole conversation in John 21. And then what do we see? Not just, not even too, far, too much farther in our Bible, the way that we have our, our Bible outlined. John 21, Acts 1, Acts 2. What happens in Acts 2? 
the day of Pentecost. Who's the guest preacher at the day of Pentecost? Standing up boldly and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter. Peter, through a testing and trial of his faith, which he failed, came strengthened out of that testing. In the order that on the day when thousands were standing before him, he boldly stood up and said, here's the faith that I believe and that you should believe as well. There's one name given among, uh, given, uh, uh, you know what I'm saying, I can't remember the exact way. He says, there's one name, Jesus Christ, that you should believe upon there in that message. He boldly gets up and, and preaches. Now, Peter, he still wasn't perfect. He, he struggled in his life. We know he struggled even later on in life with legalism. Paul addresses that in the book of Galatians. But we do know this, Peter was growing. His faith was strengthening. It was becoming more and more refined through testing. And so that's how he could come to these people and write a letter saying, hey, just know that the trying of your faith, that the trial of your faith is going to work out even more precious than gold. You know how gold works? Even more precious than gold, your faith will be refined. Our trials, our testings are refining our faith and they're growing us as a people of faith. And Peter, he goes on to point to the fact that trials draws closer to God. In verse 8 and 9, he brings up our ultimate salvation. He's talking about the good news. He's saying that, that even through this, you receive the end of your souls, which is your salvation. He's saying, I'm bringing up to you the good news of Jesus. The, the good news of Jesus is not that God will save you from your trials. The good news of Jesus is that he will save you from your sins. And because of that good news... We can be anchored to our salvation, to our eternal hope. Okay, he, he's bookending it. He's saying, you have an eternal hope, even though you're going through trials. You can rejoice because of that eternal hope. And by the way, one day you're going to see your faith will become sight. You will receive the end of your souls. And, and one day that salvation will be fully, fully realized in your life. Jesus, when he was on this earth, even said, you're going to have tribulation. John chapter 16. In this world, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. What is, what is he saying there? He's saying, you're going to go through hard times, but you can have joy because I've overcome it. What's Peter saying here? You're going to go through hard times, but you can have joy because Christ has overcome. And pointing to our salvation. Jesus, he saves our souls and forgives us of our sins. That is the gospel. That is our salvation. Peter even goes further into it, saying that same salvation, Peter says, the prophets, they hoped for it and they predicted it. The Holy Spirit progressively revealed it through the Old Testament scriptures. If you read through there, uh, I'm just kind of giving an overview of the really long portion of verse 10 all the way to 12. This is what he's saying. He's saying the prophets hoped for the salvation that would come through the gospel. And they, and they awaited what the Spirit was revealing to them progressively. The Spirit, that it, here, Peter even gives just a little glimpse of what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 24 when he says that all the Old Testament was pointing that he should have suffered. He's saying here, the prophets were looking to the suffering that would come from Christ that would bring our redemption, that the Holy Spirit was always showing us would take place. Okay, and then he goes even further. He says this, that was also declared to you by the apostles. Some of these people, an interesting thing, you read who he's writing this letter to. Cappadocia, Asia, Pontus. You read some of those places. You go back to Acts chapter number two where Peter stood up and declared the gospel. Guess some of the people that were there. 
people from Pontus, Cappadocia, some of these very places. Peter, some of these very people that Peter is writing to could possibly be those who heard his message all the way back at the day of Pentecost and believed and were now living scattered abroad up in uh, these areas of the world. And he's saying, look, it was declared unto you by the apostles. But not only that, your salvation is so rich. The redemption that you have in Christ is so amazing. He even, I don't know if you noticed, he tacked it on the, at the end. Even the angels desire to look into it. Even the angels are watching the very unfolding of God's plan of redemption in your life and in mine and going, huh, that's amazing. He's saying the prophets hoped for it. The spirit revealed it. The, prof, the uh, apostles proclaimed it. And the angels, they ponder it. They think, wow, what an amazing salvation. What an amazing thing that God is doing in the life of you and me. And if that kind of salvation that we have doesn't anchor us, and we really do have an untrustworthy faith, a shallow faith or a conditional faith. Peter's saying, no, no, no. If you're anchored in what I'm talking about, you can have joy even in the midst of grievous times because this is, an, this is a truth that is lasting and living. Because of the gospel, our salvation, we can be assured that our trials are refining our faith. They're growing us, drawing us closer to God and making us more and more like Jesus. Peter's saying, we are citizens of a different kingdom than those in this world. Therefore, we're gonna be different. We're gonna be different. Our faith is different. Our faith is not in what we see. Our faith is in who God is and what Jesus Christ has done. And because of what our faith is in, our faith isn't just in what we see and in the circumstances around us. Because our faith is in who God is and what Jesus Christ has done, though we hurt in trials because it's real, and though we fear at times because we're human, at the same time, we have faith in a supernatural God and we can have an unexplainable joy in the midst of hardship that could only come from heaven. A joy that people look at and go, that doesn't even make sense why they're somehow rejoicing that this hardship is going to do something in their life. And when I went through that, it broke me. The world looks at, a, at believers who have a genuine faith and they go, when I went through that, it broke me. Why isn't it breaking them? There's something different about the faith of those who are followers of Jesus. As followers of Christ, we have a different faith in trials because our faith gives us a living hope a confident expectation that lasts, reserved in heaven for us. And so in trials, we rejoice because our faith is not in our circumstances and because we understand there is a purpose for every single one of our hardships. So when we go through hardships, may we anchor ourselves in the truth of God's eternal salvation for us and say, man, it hurts right now. In fact, I kind of hate what I'm going through. But you know what I love? The hope I have in my Jesus. And because of the hope of, uh, that I have in my Jesus, I'm gonna walk through this knowing it's revealing my, my faith in him and it's refining my faith to grow me to be more like him every step of the way. 
Thank you so much for joining us. A special thanks to those that give generously to our ministry. It's because of you that this ministry is possible. For more information about our ministry, check out our website at wenatchechurch.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe, you can share it with your friends, hit the share button or take a screenshot and share it on your social media, and tag us at Wenatchee Church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.